to the captain's table at 10 forward. Welcome to the Captain's Table in 10 Forward, where we have intimate chats with those who have shaped Star Trek in words. My name is Sina, and I'm in Texas. My name's Michael in Wells, and this week our special guest is author, comic editor, stroke writer, and so much more, Bob Greenberger. Welcome to the show, Bob. Why, thank you, Michael and Sina. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, we're really excited to have you here, and thank you again. And for those listeners who have been living under a rock for the last, oh, 25, 30 years or so, can you please uh, let them know uh, what your involvement in comics and Star Trek and books is? All right. The succinct version of this <clears throat> is that I got my first comic book when I was six years old, and it was an issue of Superman, and I was captivated. And from there, and a steady diet of, of comics and science fiction. My father bought me my first science fiction book. He, I found him watching an episode of Star Trek and was mesmerized by watching these people on the transporter platform without knowing what it was, but they were vanishing before my eyes, which was kind of cool when you're, you know, eight, nine years old. That led to an interest in comics and science fiction and all things publishing, which led to my studying journalism at college, which led to my first job right out of college, which was uh, at Starlog Press, working on Starlog and Fangoria, and then ultimately creating comic scene for them. But that magazine was canceled. DC Comics, very nice hired me to work with them and I was there for oh, 16 some odd years before I took a job elsewhere then wound up uh, at a year at Marvel back at DC for several years moved from DC to the Weekly World News before they folded that been freelancing pretty much ever since can you tell us about Crazy 8 Press Bob because that's where a lot of your freelancing is now, isn't it? We're... Not as much as it should be, but will increase this coming year. Basically, in 2010, when the iPad was introduced, publishing world suddenly recognized that the long prophesied digital book was becoming commonplace. And publishing basically stopped and said, all right, how do we monetize this? What does it mean? What are we buying? What are we not buying? And it was really easy for them to say no until they figured this out, which meant that a lot of my freelance work started to dry up. I was not alone. I am considered a mid-list author, and I cannot tell you the number of, of peers at the same level who were suddenly without work or struggling with half the, the income they previously had. So I watched the, several of them dip their toes into digital publishing, and that got uh, Mike Friedman started with the idea that several of us should band together and bring our disparate followings to the same website so we can support one another and hopefully cross-pollinate. Gave birth, gosh, a year and a half ago to Crazy 8 Press. Uh, so it's Peter David, Michael Jan Friedman, Aaron Rosenberg, Glenn Hellman, and myself. There we have launched a number of projects, some of which had been written for other publishers but got rejected or canceled. Some stuff we wrote thinking that you know we would find an audience for this. So yeah, I've got a couple things there. There will definitely be more this coming year. You know, as with any startup, you've got things in fits and starts and you're making constant adjustments, but we're, we're getting a toehold. I think this is going to be a good 
year. And what's that website then? Well, that would be crazyaidpress.com. Crazy8. And is it A-E-I-G-H-T? I've got both URLs. So you can spell out the eight or use the numeral. So either mm-hmm. way, you're in the same place and you can see um, the current books available. And there will be several more this year, at least two or three that I will be contributing to. So that, that's a good thing. Bob, you, you mentioned about freelancing and I've spoken to a couple of guys on the holodeck, Gordon Purcell and uh, J.K. Woodward, Xander Cannon, and obviously yourself too, who are all, all freelancers. And something you mentioned on your blog that stood out for both Cena and myself was when you mentioned that one of the primary things I was taught and passed on to those I trained at DC was always to acknowledge the freelancer. Even if it's a simple, the package was received, haven't looked at it, but will shortly. It gives us a sense of comfort. Gordon was, Gordon was mentioning the same sort of thing, and he was saying that in the last couple of years, things have dried up, and it's a lot more difficult out there for the freelancer and and do you think that the larger companies are ignoring freelancers and perhaps doing a disservice because there's a real talent out there that's being forgotten comic book and book publishers would not survive without freelancers because there are no staff writers and staff artists so the, the key is creating an environment that is welcoming to freelancers where the freelancers feel their contributions are valued and that includes the simple acknowledgement that materialism has arrived it, it's a it's a real interesting thing watching, especially in comics, where one generation rises up and supplants the a, an earlier generation. So when I was editing DC in the 1980s, I suddenly found myself telling guys who had been working steadily for the company since like the 1960s that their style is no longer contemporary enough that people want to read it or buy the comics that they contribute to, and therefore we don't need their services anymore, making room for people whose, whose style are suddenly in demand. And that that's painful. Those are guys I, I grew up reading and suddenly be able to say to these guys who, whose work I still enjoyed, I can't buy it anymore. There, there, there's no market for it. And I hate to say it, but guys like myself and Gordon are, you know, who rose in the 80s are now becoming that generation that is no longer in demand. That oh, doesn't mean we're totally put out the pasture. It just means there's a natural evolution and a natural cycle to all this. And, you know, yeah, it means we're not working as steadily as we would like in comic books or even in book publishing. But that's acknowledgement that that's the you know the game we're playing well i have to say yeah, that's just crazy and i know on the holodeck as well we mentioned the fact i asked the question would you write for star trek again and and again you said oh at the moment they, they're going a different way and it's really weird the last you know five years or so i haven't seen a star trek book from yourself from michael jan freeman peter david's last new frontier was a good couple of years ago and right. no, that, I mean, and it's just it's just weird to see all these great names that have wrote star trek books not there anymore and it seems really weird well a lot of it is it comes down to the taste of the editor who is buying the material and right now that that is predominantly margaret clark mm. and to a lesser degree uh, ed schlesinger and both of them are leaning towards a different crew of writers and again it, it's a natural evolution peter and i would probably jump at a chance to, to write more star trek material but if the call doesn't come it doesn't come i mean that's part of the freelance game again when we want to write science fiction and no one wants us to write science fiction we'll write it ourselves and sell it through crazy eight and i hope there's really still an audience for it i know that you were a like you mentioned a comic book editor how did you get from being an editor to writing star trek novels and short stories back in the day i was editing the star trek comic book and i reached out to the editors at pocket books who were just a few blocks away and i said to them look i don't want our stories to contradict i know as a reader it really bothers me if i see characters with multiple storylines 
ideas that conflict or contradict one another. I would like to see if we could share our general ideas and, you know, avoid avoid duplicating or contradicting or causing confusion. And at the time, a guy named David Stern was editing, and he said, absolutely, by all means. At that point, quite a number of the authors were in the tri-state uh, area up in New York. So Dave began hosting, um, like, receptions for his authors and kindly invited me, which is how I met Mike Friedman. And that got us to starting to talk about uh, what was then a novel concept, which was these shared universes that multiple authors were contributing to. And this would have been Robert Lynn Asprey and Steve's world. And we wondered, could that concept be brought to a Star Trek novel, which led to my invitation to contribute to Doomsday World, which was the next generation novel Peter, Mike, Carmen Carter, and I worked on. And we had tremendous fun. Carmen didn't have as much fun and withdrew from the next collaboration, but then Mike, Peter, and I did several more, and uh, we continue to work together to this day. Meantime, I was consulting with Pocket on their storylines, which led to my helping work heavily on uh, the Lost Years arc of novels, which was trying to fill in the gap between the end of the TV series and the first motion picture, which led to an invitation to write my first full-length novel, and it turned out uh, at the proposal stage, I was not ready for prime time, and I needed to continue to hone my fiction because I was trained as a journalist, and, and it's one thing to edit fiction or comic book scripts. Uh, it's another thing to write it. But the collaborations certainly were fabulous training ground, which finally led to my first solo novel, which was the Next Generation book, uh, The Rhymeland Stratagem. So that's how. Cool. Thank you. Star Trek and you, Bob. How did you get into Star Trek originally? As I said, um, there was one Friday night I distinctly remember being up past my bedtime and I went down to the kitchen for something and I looked into the family room and there was Father on the couch watching something and I see these guys in very colorful shirts standing on a platform and then vanishing from sight. I was like, what the heck is that? Then he let me watch an episode or two during, uh, I guess, the summer rerun season. I was fascinated and then uh, the show went off the air, went into first run syndication, which meant it was running at six o'clock at night on one of the local New York channels and I watched every episode and just fell in love. So I began writing about Star Trek for my junior high paper and senior high uh, school paper. I went to the very first of the Star Trek conventions, wound up volunteering to work at three of the others run by the original committee, and uh, I've been associated with it ever since. Do you have a favorite Star Trek series? You always remember your first, don't you? Yes. Um, <laughs> so for me, it was the original series, you know, with the Kirk and Spock and, and the crew of the Starship Enterprise. Nobody A, B, e, C, or D, just N, C. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to like about all the other incarnations. But yeah, I mean, the original show is my favorite, and one of my great creative regrets is that I never had a chance to do a, an original series. Tell us about Gateways and your influence on that storyline. At that time, the line was being edited at Pocket by John Ordover, and John was a huge comic book fan and wanted to take a lot of the marketing tropes that were successful for comics back at the time and apply them to the Star Trek novels to try and goose sales, which meant every year there would be some sort of a crossover between the novels. Back then, he and I would instant message on a practically daily basis. He said he was looking for ideas for the next crossover, and we bandied a bunch of ideas 
ideas back together. And before we knew it, we had developed the Gateways concept, which led to my writing the Doors into Chaos contribution for the next generation and then uh, masterminding uh, the majority of the wrap up uh, in what lay beyond. What I was going to ask was last time we spoke, we were talking about the JJ verse and yes. the trailer had just dropped. And I had mentioned about the Japanese trailer. Did you get a chance to see that? And yes. what did you think? I, you know, at the time we were talking about it, it was like, you know, did that extra couple of seconds of, of footage um, change any of our speculation about what was going to happen? Mm. I, and I think it was particularly done with a wink and a nod to the fans to, to tease them along. The first of the tie-in comic books, Countdown to Darkness, just came out this week. It looks like Cumberbatch is playing April, which is not what we originally expected. Well, no, quite a surprise, wasn't it? Very much so. But you know what? That's fine. It means, you know, he is carving his own path. He is not imitating what came before because I think it would have been a disaster to do Wrath of Khan as the second film. No, definitely. What did you think about the first comic, The Countdown to Darkness? Um, other than the fact that I know it's unfortunately it just arrived in my monthly box from Westfield Comics today. Ah. <laughs> on my nightstand waiting to be read. It looks good. So the next time we talk to you, you'll give us the full lowdown, huh? Of all four <laughs> issues, what you think. <laughs> I mean, it's real interesting since we're talking about JJ. Um, I think it's noteworthy that yesterday Disney releases the formal press announcement that uh, J.J. is signed to direct Star Wars 7 and Paramount immediately came out and said but J.J. is still going to be involved in Star Trek and Mission Impossible don't worry yes. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but he'll boost at minimum a third Star Trek film and maybe that means we'll get the third one faster that's kind of my hope hopefully it'll go back to television afterwards where it belongs yeah we, we've already had all the Star Trek slash Star Wars jokes about how Sulu is going to be fighting with the lightsaber now and and they're going to throw Darth Vader in the brig and all that kind of stuff. It's just crazy. I am your father. <laughs> yeah, as we've always said, you know, both franchises, it's a big enough world. They can exist, you know, there's no need for all this rivalry between the two. It's just totally different stories. You know, the thing is, is that there, because Star Trek is the big kahuna, the big, it was first, it set so many of the ground rules and it created the avenue for all this other science fiction to follow. You know, before Star Wars, there was this Star Trek versus Space 1999 fans and then Star Wars and then it was Star Wars versus Battlestar Galactica. You're looking for natural rivalries and you know it's the same in sports. It, it gives you something to talk about between movies. Did you see the full nine minute trailer? You mean the IMAX version of the first yes. nine minute film? Uh, yes. No, I only read descriptions of it. I don't have a, I don't have as convenient an IMAX theater near me as I would like. So if it's right Bob, let's talk about writing a Star Trek story. Um, you you so use vowels and consonants. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I was, I was, that was my first question. Where do you begin? And it, it's obviously with the alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you begin? Do you, you pitch the idea or did someone come to you and say, this is the idea? For example, David Mack, he was given a picture. This is a picture from a Star Trek calendar about the Columbia that crashed. Can right. you write an epic trilogy based on this picture? And <laughs> that, that's what he went and did. Harry's assignment to assignment. For example, when we conceived doing Doomsday World, we were said, here, do a collaborative Star Trek Next Generation book, and we went off and, and brainstormed. So we had a blank tapestry to work from. On the other hand, the very 
very day Marvel Comics fired me, John Ordover called and said, I want you to write two books in, in this Time 2 series. So I was sort of shoehorned into this existing project and, and was given, you know, my place in the pecking order to work from. You know, so it, it definitely varies. Things like the two stories we're about to talk about were written for specific anthologies that had specific parameters. And, you you know, once you know what the rules are or that there are no rules, then, then you work accordingly. When you were writing Star Trek stories and including the ones that we're going to talk about, I remember when we discussed the Star Trek comics and you went through the, the drama that you went through to get some of these stories passed sometimes. Was it different in, in with the novels? Was it a lot more relaxed in terms of here's my story, this is what I want to do, and, and they would just say, yeah, go ahead? By the time I was pitching to the novels and contributing fairly regularly to them, um, the worst of, of that uh, licensing approval nightmare was in the past. And we were working with Paula Block predominantly and then John Van Sitters uh, later on. Two of them were very encouraging. If they saw a problem because they knew something we didn't, um, they were very kind and said, look, this isn't working. This is why it's not working. And actually gave us creative suggestions um, to make changes. It was very collaborative, very collegial. I don't recall any single pitch I ever made flatly rejected. Um, if they had an issue with it, we, we tweaked it and fixed it, or we agreed, you know, we'd, we'd try something different. But it wasn't like, nope, sorry, can't be done, and move on. Oh, that must have been felt quite refreshing compared to all the, as we say, all the dramas you went through with the comics. Well put. Yeah, no, it was a much better and a much more rewarding creative experience. Just so you know, I mean, you know, usually the editor and I would knock a couple ideas back and forth, or I'd uh, write up like one paragraph ideas and send two or three of them off to the editor and, and see what they think before it becomes a, a full outline, which then goes to Paramount for approval. So in a lot of my cases, it would be a one paragraph pitch that then becomes a five, 10 page outline, which then goes to Paramount for approval. And once that is signed off on by Paramount, then take the outline and expand further upon it, breaking it down into chapters for pacing, uh, and then get started on the writing. So for example, on the Time 2 series where you said that you were contacted and said, you know, they said, we want you to write two of these books in the series. Did they just give you the idea and you had to write the outline or did they already have an outline for you? Uh, no, they didn't. They, they had the general parameters that this was going to be a time to a year long fill in the gaps series of stories that when the Enterprise E was introduced, it said it had a year shakedown. But well, we don't know what that E that year was. So we, these stories filled that gap. They definitely wanted to do some stories pushing some of the characters. They wanted to. I'm sorry, it's not the E. It was um, it was leading up to Nemesis. Forgive me. So we knew that in Nemesis, Riker and Troy were getting married, but but we felt that the fans were cheated of the proposal and, and things leading up to the wedding uh, and the fact that he was going off to the Titan and all. So that was really what was propelling us. We're putting the characters between Insurrection and Nemesis. John thrilled me by saying, I got to do the proposal. So I turned around and, and figured out, all right, you got it. You know, I was basically given um, lo love and hate simply because that's the way the, the, um, the lyrics work. Right. And I then said, all right, if I'm going to have love, I'm going to have hate. I'm going to have yin and yang going on here. 
if he's going to propose, there has to be some other counterpoint, which led to me thinking that uh, maybe it was time to kill Riker's father, Kyle, which is what happened in my books. You've written lots of short stories for the SCE stories, one of which we're going to uh, talk about shortly, but also for other anthologies such as No mm-hmm. Limits and the Con- Constellations for the TOS. And how did your collaboration in the No Limits New Frontier come about? That was a project long coming. I remember it had been about two years before the actual writing started when uh, a bunch of the authors and I guess it was Marco Palmieri was, uh, was the editor and we all sat around and we were talking about New Frontier and you know at that point Peters was the sole writer of it and the idea of would other writers be allowed to play in that particular corner of the universe be allowed and Peter suggested the idea that maybe a series of short stories by other writers would you know be an interesting experiment and everybody nodded and we all said count me in, count me in, you know, we all started claiming our characters, and Peter nodded a lot. Before we knew it, time passed, and finally somebody asked, said, hey, whatever happened to that idea? And they said, you know, we should do that. And it finally happened. And then it became a more formalized process where we all wrote up our pitches, and Peter and Marco vetted them all, and then Paramount uh, approved them, and we wrote them. And, you know, the only extra layer involved was the Peter uh, reading everything in advance, making sure that his characters that he created sounded like his characters and that uh, what we established was not going to contradict anything he had planned for the character. I chose Robin Leffler because I, 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 you know, back then I thought Ashley Judd was just, you know, cute as cute as could be and I, and I thought she was a real intriguing character to play with so I, I just grabbed her and held on. And then it turned out what I was working on actually dovetailed nicely with the story Elsa Bick was writing for the anthology. So we shared some notes back and forth and, and tweaked one or two things so that they resonated very well together. Oh, that's really cool because one of the things that Peter David mentions in his foreword is that he was very happily surprised that not everybody wanted to write for Mackenzie Calhoun and knowing that you didn't write a Mackenzie Calhoun story that's why I was asking you the question right um again you know it's like I, I thought she was just a, a really interesting character and, and she came up with these Leffler's laws on the, the next generation show that Peter continued in the novels and I said they had to come from somewhere so I tried to come up with a story that explained them which you know in her way was a defense mechanism or a way of coping with with situations gave it some psychological underpinnings that again resonated off what Elsa was doing so it worked out really well so Bob can we talk about two of your short stories now and the first one is The Landing Party and this is from Constellations and this was a set of stories to celebrate the 40th anniversary of TOS and just to let the listeners know it's set shortly after where no man has gone before at a time when McCoy and several new crew members have just come aboard it tells of Sulu's switch from science to command staff and his first time leading a landing party can you tell us how this story came about and was it you that decided you wanted to do Sulu or again was it an outline sent to you Marco Palmieri was the editor for all of these anniversary anthologies that were coming out in a short space of time it felt like and each time he sent out an open query 
to the usual suspects. He said, I'm looking for stories that do this, 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 and this, and not that, 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 and that. And it was, you know, I wanted original series era because that's the anniversary we're celebrating. So I don't want the movies. I don't want sequels to specific episodes. I, you know, there was a whole bunch of interesting parameters that, that on the one hand, you might feel hampered. On the other hand, you go, all right, here's a challenge. Where, where can I find a story to set? Sulu from the 70s forward was, you know, to me, one of, one of my favorite characters and certainly one of the, the least realized and explored. And again, that was the nature of primetime television, that these secondary characters in the 1960s were not significant. You know, you had the broad strokes of who they were and they were there to support the leads. And that's fine. That's the way it was. In prose, though, you had a great opportunity to, to flesh that out. We saw him basically leading the landing party in that first season episode that Robert Block wrote. Um, oh, great. Totally oh. blanking on the name of the episode. Oh, don't worry. Um, is that the one where Kirk split in two? Yes. And he's and on Julie the landing party. With the landing party, but he was in charge. And we yeah. know he's the astrophysicist in Where No Man Has Gone Before, but he's at the helm by the Corbin maneuver. Something must have happened. So he said, there's a story to tell. How did he get from point A to point B? And for Kirk to trust him with the landing party in that episode early in the first season, he must have had other experience. What happened? Based on those questions, I came up with the story, wrote it up an outline, it got approved. That's amazing. So do you like, in your office, just so like the great big whiteboard and you just literally wrote those little key points on and then the story just formed from there? No, no not quite a whiteboard, but obviously, you know, you sit down with things like the Star Trek chronology or the Star Trek encyclopedia, or you go to Memory Alpha or Memory Beta, and you look around and, you, and you're just poking your pride and you go, hey, whatever happened to, or did this ever happen? And you do your research and you take notes and things suggest themselves. What made you think of doing the story instead of in a straight third person narration from the different perspectives of Sulu, Spock, Kirk, and even Bones for a bit? Because that changed it up and made it really interesting to me. Well, thank you. I think at that point, if memory serves me, it was a creative challenge to myself. Rather than tell it all from a single point of view, make the story richer if we do the multiple points of view, um, have the characters react to what has been happening. Because a doctor sees things differently than the scientist and the commander. So their perspective really helps flesh out what Sulu experienced. They've all been there. They've all had a first landing party. They've all had a first death. They've all had, you know, these things happen to them. So they bring that experience and that point of view to Sula's experience. So I thought it was important to counterpoint it. Did you start off thinking that you were going to do that or did that evolve as you were writing the story? I think between the outline and Paramount's approval, which was my green light to actually start the prose, the notion had occurred to me that my, my attack would be the multiple points of view. Did you also in your outline knew that you were going to have a death in the story? Yes. Yes, I, you know, had they had they beamed down and had the mission gone well, it would have been a boring story. You needed some sense of drama. And what could be the worst thing to happen to a guy leading his first landing party? To have somebody die, yes. Yeah. So, you know, that's one of the things authors are taught. You think of a situation, how can you make it worse? How can you really push your characters to see what they're made out of? So we killed somebody. With the story, how do you discipline yourself not to turn it into a larger novel? Was there chunks you had to take out or was you quite disciplined? 
this is how many pages I've or how many words I've got and I'm going to stick to this or could you have turned this into a, a full-size novel? That's a good question. Honestly, when you're given an assignment such as pitching to a short story anthology, you think of slightly smaller stories, slightly more personal stories, such as, you know, focusing on Sulu compared to the entire bridge crew. So you scale appropriately. Could this have been part of a larger story? Probably. You know, if you give me 15 minutes, I'd probably find a, a couple of ways that this could have been the beginning, middle, or, or climax of a larger um, story involving everybody. But really, you know, the demands of a short story are different than the demands of a novel. And you look at stories and characters appropriately. Which do you find the more challenging, the shorter story or the full-size novel? I have written fewer short stories than novels. And I find that I'm writing currently, like for, for um, some of the Crazy A projects, I'm writing shorter works. And therefore, I, I'm training myself to think in those ways. Again, it depends upon the assignment. I am a, an experienced enough and disciplined enough writer that if say, Bob, I need a short story next week, I could probably sit down and come up with a short story. Or I need an outline for a novel, I could sit down and, and, and do that instead. That's part of being a professional writer. You mentioned that you, you were very proud of this story when you were talking with Michael about what we were going to discuss today. Mm-hmm. Why, why are you specifically proud of this story? One, I got to write the original series. Two, I got to write the original series featuring one of my favorite characters in the original series. And three, I think it worked. I think the story works very well. It's a good character-based story. It's true to Star Trek. It's true to what happened in the first season. I think just all the elements came together very well. I have to agree. And and what I loved about this story was it was still within a year of, of Kirk taking command of the Enterprise. And, you know, the crew still weren't sure about him. Spock still had doubts. Some, and, that you know, you start to see the development of the triangle of Kirk, Spock, McCoy. And I love the fact when Kirk's thinking to himself that McCoy is going to do a lot of good for Spock. I, I just thought that was really good because he does. And, and you see that as the series develops. Um, yeah. McCoy does have an impact upon Spock. The line that stood out for me is when you mentioned, um, and considering that this was just after Where No Man's Gone Before, that Kirk's mortality rate as captain of the Enterprise had already exceeded Captain Pike's. And, and that just that just blew my head. And it's like, well, it's only going to get worse. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is I seem to recall, I picked that up from one of the other books that had been written around that time. Therefore, establishing it, I just played off it because it made sense. You know, one of the things, you know, since we're about to get into the other story, I think, is the beginning of TV series where the characters are getting established, where the writers and producers are starting to feel their way through things because things change from the pilot to, to a weekly series as the actors get comfortable with their parts and the writers begin, you know, exploring stuff. And notice it's the, it's the first season of many TV series leave lots and lots of opportunities to explore and play. Uh, that's why I think that story worked well and I, why I think the Voyager story worked as well. Yeah, one final note before we talk talk about the Voyager story, I did want to say that I really enjoyed this story and I liked the way you tied it to where no man has gone before and made reference to it without it being a so-called sequel to it. It was very nice. Thank you very much. One of the keys to, to make these stories work, especially when you, again, this is an anniversary anthology, so you want to have the, those nods to the source material, is it really cements where the story is in the reader's mind and the character, because obviously those recent events will affect how they interact with one another or what's on their mind. You have to make sure your reader is following along. Moving on from there, we're going to now discuss Command Code, which is from Distant Shores, and that's a series of short stories based on Voyager. 
Voyager, just to let the listeners know, the story synopsis is, at the beginning of their journey home, the USS Voyager unknowingly enters Dresh territory, a fiercely territorial race that guard their borders with mines. When Captain Janeway is injured in a collision with a Dresh mine, Commander Jakotay must take command to save the ship. However, his attempts to save Voyager are hindered by the fact that Tuvok has disabled his command codes. Bob, where did this story come from and and how did you get involved in this project? Again, Marco put out the call and I'm one of the usual suspects at the time, so I was involved. And I had not written anything about Voyager. I hadn't edited any Voyager material in comics. Uh, So to me, this was, you know, really interesting territory for the first time. To me, and I've been very vocal about this through the years, Voyager never lived up to its potential because they immediately discarded what the series was premised on. And I thought that was a huge mistake. Now, I discovered only, you know, in the last year or so that that was an intentional decision on their part based on some audience surveying they had done about Deep Space Nine that colored their decisions about Voyager. But at the time, I just said, they really missed the boat. And I wanted to get back to that tension between the Maquis crew and the Federation crew. And I'm going to admit, I faced the tension between the two men, both thinking they were doing the right thing, uh, entirely on Crimson Tide, the showdown between Gene Hackman and um, Denzel Washington. They both thought they were doing the right thing they were doing the right thing and yet chaos ensued as a result i didn't have the the luxury of a full-length movie to explore this but i thought in the case of this one story i could really get into what was motivating these characters at this early point in the story again just from that i love crimson tide and it's a great film and i would never put the two together but looking at it now it, it just fits perfectly and again from where we spoke about could you have made the landing party into a full-length novel do you think you you could have made this into a, a full-length novel no. the exact same way crimson tide did with the, with the crew dividing along the expected ranks or maybe some surprise you know defections from one side to the other based on whatever the issue was the impending dread of the dress who they were what was going on what the stakes were yeah that could have been scaled up no question and, and i think what's really good though the dress are a threat in this story and it's really important that Voyager is able to move on from here and, and technically defeat the Dresh so they can escape. It's about the interaction between Jakote and Tuvok. That is the story. And that just stands out so well. And and to be honest, if, if we could ever have gone back in time and this could have been the second episode of Voyager, it would have been mine. And, and I've put in my notes, this story should have been filmed. <laughs> Thank you very much. When you're at the beginning of a series, you need as much character-based material as possible so that your audience or readers get emotionally invested in these characters so they come back week after week or book after book to follow along. And that means seeing what they're made out of. And in this case, we saw, you know, what these two guys were made out of the marquee story was settled too quickly and in some ways it wasn't even mentioned that you know apart from when they did the like worst case scenario episode and again that was a holodeck based story what surprised me is the fact that they just walked completely away and i know you mentioned it was because they'd done some uh, research with the audience and everything but it just felt they just played it too safe isn't it and they just didn't want that conflict and again it goes back to gene roddenberry thinking that he didn't want conflict in the, in the 24th century well right i mean gene felt that somehow in the next 200 years mankind is going to somehow give up thousands of years of you know development uh-huh, and become enlightened and that's a great noble thing to think about but it created what uh, was known as the box of, you know how, how do you get out of this particular box of conflict you know how do you tell interesting stories 
And Rick Berman, the inheritor of the legacy, protected the box and forced everyone to think along those guidelines. You know, Voyager started, was the series that really started to move way past the box by setting them far from home. And no. that natural conflict rise. Does having hindsight over what happened to each of the characters over the seven years makes it easier to go back and tell this story? A little bit. You know, you're looking for interesting places to work with the characters to figure out how things happen. There was a lot of complaint in the seventh season when the Chakotay Seven of Nine romance sprung out of nowhere. Producers trying to stir the pot, but it came from nowhere. There should have been something to set it up. So you look for things like that. How could how could that have started? And you and you, you know, is there a story to tell there? I distinctly remember before thinking about Command Code, I wanted to explore what that. I think it was a one month or three month gap where Janeway was, you know, the, the night storyline where Janeway was basically cutting herself off from the crew. So how does the crew function? Who does the crew turn to when they have problems? That would have been an interesting story to explore as well. I love that episode. That's a great episode, and that would have been a great story. I agree. Do you have favorite characters in Voyager? You know, I, I generally like Janeway. I think Tuvok was one of the strongest of the characters from beginning to end. Although obviously, you know, so much happened to him mentally and emotionally that I'm glad the novels picked up on that and have been playing with you know fallout from all of that uh, mental interference. I also think Balana was one of the most underutilized characters because she was always under Janeway's shadow as the scientist engineer and late to explore her Klingon heritage. I, I, I thought more could have been done with her earlier on. I love the way you wrote about Harry because it was exactly what a green cadet would have been like, I think. Um, the voice raised and, and, and the tension that he was feeling and Jakote snapping at him and it was just brilliant. You could imagine those scenes and you could have imagined the actors saying those those lines. It was just really, really brilliant. I really do enjoy this story. Glad to hear it. Right. Again, it's one that I think worked on, on multiple levels and I remain proud of. Right, and, and I liked it the toward the end where both men realize, okay, yes, there are things that we could have done better. And I like the fact that you had Chakotay start reviewing the Starfleet rules and regulations. You know, well, he, he hadn't been in the fleet for a while, and he was now suddenly second in command. He needed to, you know, walk the walk and talk the talk. Right. It absolutely makes a lot of sense. And to have this great story as the backstory for why he's, okay, yes, I need to get back and to the swing of things for Starfleet so that this doesn't happen again you know that that's great and I think as well with Tuvok it, it was almost like Vulcan presumption isn't it that Chakotay's not going to be up to the job you can even as well you can tell the disappointment that Janeway has towards him the fact that he didn't trust her with with her decision to have Chakotay have the first officer and to trust him with with you know something as important as the command codes yeah um the thing is that you have to remember while Tuvok and Janeway have a, a long-standing relationship. Tuvok's relationship in Starfleet is stretches all the way back to Sulu and the Excelsior. Mm. He, you know, so he's seen the best and worst of, of Starfleet officers, and he has a, a, and a whole different frame of mind and point of view that comes to play here. Being a big Sulu fan, did you enjoy flashback with with Voyager? Heck yes. First of all, technically they they made it seamless, which I thought was fabulous. I thought it was a really imaginative way to salute the series anniversary. Great to see. Uh, Grace Lee Whitney and, and George Decay there. I'm sorry um, the plan, the Shell Nichols appearance didn't work out, at, you know, as they had hoped. That would have made it just that much richer. But uh, yeah, no, it was great. And, you know, clearly it was fun seeing Tuvok in the old style uniform and uh, an interesting tale. And great that they brought back Kang as well. Ah, yeah. 
Yes, Michael and Sarah. What? So much fun. Yes. <laughs> Even with ridges. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Compared to the original series. Yeah, I'm going to be curious to see what the Klingons look like in, in the JJ verse. You know, we, we've seen that helmeted image around, but you want to know what's under that helmet. I think the helmet's definitely going to come off because that'd be quite cheeky if they did the whole film and you don't see it. Of course, JJ is cheeky, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. and after all, it took two films to see what was uh, what was under Dirk's helmet, so you never know. <laughs> <laughs> the solar uh, lens will all get in the way, so we won't be able to tell. You know, every Everyone bitches about the, the you know the lens flares and JJ stuff and, and you know I just have never noticed it being that much of a distraction. I, yeah. I, I pay more attention. What I think is brilliant is in the comics they they actually add the lens flares and it just looks brilliant, it, doesn't it, Cena? <laughs> yes, just... I did notice that when we were looking at the ongoing series. What's really funny is I didn't notice the lens flare when I went to see the movie in the theater. It was just when I was watching it on TV and DVD on the yes. DVD that I noticed it. But I have to pop the blue and, and look for myself because uh, when I went to see the screening of the uh, first film uh, it was in the IMAX theater in New York City and I was just so caught up in the sheer size and spectacle of the, of the, the epic in front of me you know, I, I you know, didn't stop to be critical only a few months to go now that's right less than four months uh, indeed and you know it's one of the early kickoffs to the summer season so you know, there's going to be a lot of anticipation building really soon there will be <laughs> there is <laughs> a lot of people are just frothing at the mouth to get any sort of information they can about it if i i'm gonna pay my eight nine bucks and go sit down and be surprised i hope yeah i, I think we are I, I think people seem to think they know what this film's going to be about and there's a lot of people out there on twitter and other social media saying it's going to be this 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 and i hope everyone's proved wrong and i and i hope everyone is really surprised in looking at the trailer i really like the fact that it's a very different look and feel um, to the first film so that it definitely is not repeating itself it's just the next adventure pretty much given up trying to read all the websites that have spoilers about the movie I just want to go in and be surprised and enjoy it and go for the ride before we move on looking back at the landing party and command um, code Bob would you go back and change anything of those stories most every author would look back at their stories and go oh why did I use that word or you know that's a clunky sentence construction or something hey yeah i mean you know i'm sure i would tweak it here and there but not to not something you would obviously notice it's more coming down to the craft of writing than, than it is the substance of it so no major even minor plot points changed i don't think so we were reading on your blog and we're big comic fans because we do host the holodeck on the trackmate family which you've been interviewed by michael for we did notice that you have a had a comment on your blog that said dc's new 52 is clearly aimed at an audience that does not entirely include me and what passes for acceptable storytelling is baffling one of the things that michael and i have talked about not really in star trek but in (laughs) other in other comics is that there's constant rebooting of storylines and in this latest rebooting superman is no longer married to lois peter parker is no longer and marvel is no longer married to mary jane and they rebooted the batman family so that Barbara Gordon is now Batgirl again. What were your thoughts behind writing that on your blog? Oh, I could have gone on and on and on, but it was just something that, uh, that had been on my mind because I've been talking to, again, a number of my peers, all, many of whom are not actively working at DC at the moment, and look at it with, like, 
like, my God, what have they done to the stuff we grew up on? You know, the characters we, we knew and love. I understand the commercial reasons for the complete and total reboot for New 52. There's absolutely nothing wrong with doing it that way. Um, it was certainly one of the things discussed back uh, when we did the reboot for the Crisis on Infinite Earths. Marv Wolfman wanted the entire line renumbered with number one um, after Crisis number 12. And at the time, the executive editor, Dick Giordano, said no and later regretted that because he thought that would have been the kind of clean sweep we should have had. My problem with the New 52 right now is the fact that I'm reading these books and it's wall-to-wall action and I still don't know who these people are. I don't understand who they are, what they do when they're out of costume, how many of them can pay the rent because they're never working. Hmm. Um, <laughs> every character wants something and I don't know what half of these guys want. I don't know what motivates them. I don't know why they put the uniform on. Same uh, heroes and villains alike. I don't think they've done as creative a job explaining who these people are and how their status quo works. We were told that largely the continuity of Batman and Green Lantern was going to be retained and then bit by bit we saw that no they were they, they were you know not being faithful about that so things weren't making a lot of sense and they've yet to really come out and explain all this stuff and, and the zero issues helped to a degree but I find these 20 page installments maddening because I'm not getting a story I'm not getting character I'm not getting things that feel very reasoned and, and thought out and, and considered that said over the last couple of months they're doing a much better job of integrating the 52 books to feel like it's the same universe and I think that's great and I like the fact that they have the guts to take the lower selling books and lop them off every few months and introduce the next wave because I think that's one way to keep the cream rising to the top but there are also things I, I, I strongly feel could be done a little smarter and better could you imagine DC again rebooting quite soon if, if this doesn't work or perhaps going back to the former universe I don't think so I think I think right now it's basically they put all their chips in the pot you know I mean Dan DiDio has been pretty clear that this is the new status quo for the DC characters going forward and that's the way you know that that's the business that said I noticed that the arrow on the CW network is not the arrow in the Green Arrow comic of the new 52 so obviously there is some wiggle room mm, I think the arrow on the TV show is more like Batman I mean there's some of that vibe but Green Arrow was you know mm. was always been in the Batman mold or Weisinger um, created the character for more fun clearly based on Batman and and yeah, it's dark. It, it's interesting what they did with him on the, the island for the five years. So he's come back and he's you know, trying to basically you know live down his father's legacy and all. Uh, the, there's a lot to like about the show. It's definitely growing. It's certainly attractive. It's fun to watch. You mentioned that obviously when you were at DC, again, you had big projects like the new 52. How much planning was there in one of these everything changes storylines and how far back would it go to planning? Boy, that, that's a tough one. Back in the days of the crisis, I was hired by DC in January of 84 and by then they already knew they were going to do this book called Crisis on Infinite Earths and it was going to come out for the company's 50th anniversary year in 1985 and they knew they wanted it to be big and, and change the status quo to simplify the continuity etc etc but when I got there in January with the first book 
coming out in this, you know, effectively December, which meant that we had to have the book to the printer, you know, end of October. That gave us 10 months. That Back then, having never done it before, it seemed fine. A little tight. Uh, these days, I, you know, my understanding is uh, the big company events are, in some cases, years planned. I mean, you talk to some of the guys who came on the New 52 at the beginning and said, oh, yeah, I was called in a year ago to start talking about this. So, obviously, there was a lot of thought put into it, a lot of planning. You certainly see stuff like over at Marvel. There's a lot of stuff that clearly Brian Michael Bendis and, and the Marvel guys were planning when he took over the Avengers that took eight years to pull off and it happened. And their Marvel now, you know, is the organic outgrowth of everything that's happened before where, you know, changes the status quo, but it's still the same continuity. So they took a very different approach to it. Done right, it should be a year out, year plus to get all your ducks in a row and make sure everything is creatively meshing. Do you miss being an editor in comics or writing is where you want to be now? God, yeah. I comics. I, you know, I grew up on this stuff. I love the form. I still read them. I still go to the shop every Wednesday, get excited, you know, by the good books. That's one reason why, you know, some of, some of the, the New 52 frustrates me so because they, they could be good books and aren't because they clearly haven't taught the writers good story structure. I haven't taught the editors what to look for in good art direction and story. You know, there's, there's just a lot of education I think is missing, which is keeping the comics from being as great as they could be. Given a chance to, you know, go back and freelance edit stuff for people uh, would be great to, to write and contribute would be a lot of fun. But, you know, the, you know, this is the world I'm living in at the moment. Also on your blog, you talk about what books and comics you've read. What books are you looking forward to reading in 2013? Uh, book books or comic books? Both. Um, both. Oh, man, I just started the fourth book of Game of Thrones. So obviously I want to get through the fourth and into the fifth this year. You know, I got a bunch of stuff on my to be read shelf and paperback and hardcover that, you know, dates back years. I know, like, you know, there's there's the new Brad Meltzer book that just came out that would be fun, The Fifth Assassin. There's the biography of Siegel and Schuster that'll be out in June that I just pre-ordered. Oh, the Michael Kuda Star Trek book should be a lot of fun when that comes out this year. Boy, you know, Dave Mack's doing another Star Trek trilogy and, you know, he, he, he killed it with Cold Equation, so I'm looking forward to, you know, what he's got coming up. Comics, in, in the box I just got today, I got Love and Capes uh, number six, including the most current storyline, and that currently is like my all-time favorite comic, you know. I'm uh, looking forward to seeing, you know, Star Trek miniseries and stuff. Uh, the new Mara book from Image uh, is often an interesting start. The For Thieves is fun. You know, Brian K. Vaughan's uh, saga is, is really interesting. So there's a, you know, there's a lot of quirky stuff out there that, that's not your mainstream superhero stuff that, that's fun to read. Moving on to a little bit different direction here, I have the Star Trek The Complete Unauthorized History waiting book. yes waiting for me i haven't had time with all the preparations for the and homework that i have to do for the podcast we do but i do have it waiting for me obviously you're the author of that and michael talked a bit about that with you when he was interviewing you for the holodeck but how are sales doing the voyager press uh tells me they're very happy with how it's been performing but being the author they never give you the numbers uh, <laughs> uh you know it's gotten fairly good reviews a couple of you know mixed reviews in there unfortunately no real pan so you know the reader response seems to be fairly positive sales seem good when i've done a couple of bookstore signings uh they've been well attended and, and the books are definitely 
definitely selling there. Beyond that, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I would have to ask them directly and go sell. But I honestly, I have no real numbers to, to share at the moment. Where are you going to be soon as far as uh, appearances for? Oh, good. Because, I, you know, after this, I'm having dinner. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> now, let's see. Um, I've got Farpoint in Maryland in mid-February. Then uh, Lunacon in Westchester, New York in March. After that, it's a little iffy what's going to, what the next shows are going to be. Uh, definitely short leave in Maryland uh, in August, but between March and August, it's kind of up in the air. Bob, tell us about your current projects, and of course that includes After Earth. Earth is opening in June uh, from Sony Pictures, and it's from Overbrook Entertainment, uh, which is Will Smith's company. It's a movie starring Will Smith and his son Jaden Smith. Uh, Will had the original idea, and uh, screenplay based on that idea was written by Gary Witta, who also wrote the book of Eli. It's been directed by M. Night Shyamalan, and uh, this is uh, Knight's first uh, kind of, you know, hired gun assignment, so we'll see what he brings to this. It is set a thousand years after mankind has uh, left planet Earth, and it's a father-son story. Uh, as you see in the trailer, something has happened that, that results in them on Earth, and we see what that planet is like a thousand years later. My involvement uh, came through Peter David, who's done some other work for Overbrook, and um, they asked Peter to help them take the screenplay by Gary Witta and turn it into a universe Bible that they can then purpose to comics, prose, role-playing games, social media, etc., etc. Peter said at the time he couldn't do it, but he had friends. So he recruited me and Mike Friedman. And since it's been about two years now, we have been working on the backstory to After Earth, which has resulted in a 300-plus page Bible spanning literally hundreds of thousands of years of history. And a lot of what we have generated for the Bible, you can now see on the After Earth Facebook page. If you scroll through the timeline, there's a lot of stuff plucked right from the Bible there. There was a teaser video before the first trailer, uh, again, covering a lot of the Bible material to, to set up why mankind had to leave planet Earth in the year 2072, that they had to go to another planet called Nova Prime. Basically, as you see on the Facebook page, the plan was for these giant arcs to transport mankind from Earth 100 years travel time to this planet Nova Prime, and things happen, and a thousand years later, you know, um, these characters wind up back on Earth. So, based on the Bible that three of us wrote, Mike and I wrote a one-shot prequel comic that uh, Dynamite Entertainment released in October. And then starting at the end of December, six ebook short stories by the three of us have been released on a bi-weekly basis from Random House so that uh, three of them are currently available. The fourth will be out this coming Wednesday, the uh, 29th, and we each wrote two of them. For those who don't read ebooks and prefer them in prose, these stories will be reprinted in two books. In March will be a prequel novel based on elements in the uh, Bible that resonate to the movie itself that uh, Mike, Peter, and I have co-written and that's called The Perfect Beast and that will contain three of the six um, books as a bonus and then uh, is the novel then there will be the novelization of the movie itself by Peter that also will feature the three remaining short stories. After the film, will this be an ongoing project? I would be very, very surprised that regardless of how the movie forms at the box office that that would be the end of the, the story. I think they're really emo emotionally invested in the, the property's potential. So if the movie does okay and it's a while before there's a sequel, there's certainly plenty of that can be done in other media to fill in the gaps. Animation, television, comics, prose, role-playing games, you know, tiddlywinks, whatever. So 
I would like to think that uh, Mike, Peter, and I will continue to toil in this particular sandbox. Uh, we've been having tremendous fun because we've been given incredible creative latitude, and we had so much fun trying to figure out what happened and what will happen and what could happen. So writing the prequel novel and, and these um, ebook short stories has been a lot of fun taking stuff that we, you know, one line of the Bible becomes, you know, a couple of paragraphs in the stories or chapters in the books, and that, that's kind of fun. There's a tremendous amount of material that you will find in the novelization, not in the film, but pulled from the Bible that really brings this universe to life for readers. It's going to be great to have all this material around this movie that you don't just see the movie and want more because then there is going to be more. There is already more. So right. that... Around the time the movie comes out, I, you know, I completely forgot to mention that um, I also wrote for Inside Editions the United Ranger Corps Survival Manual, which is a like 240-page hardcover book. You know, anything about the kind of stuff Insight does based on movies and television series. It is chock full of images and drawings and fold-outs and, and exclusive material. And they had me write it because... I contributed to the Bible and, you know, had so so much, you know, raw knowledge to bring to this. And even then, we were finding things they wanted added to this manual that we hadn't created for the Bible. It was like, oh, okay. So there's like all this rich material that was created for the manual that I then retrofitted into the Bible that made the Bible, you know, even richer. So it's a great companion volume. Between the After Earth novelization and, and the uh, Ranger manual, there's like, you know, so much, you know, to keep the mind going. And what's next? up for you besides all the after stuff anything on yeah uh for crazy eight uh last year we introduced an anthology book in a shared universe i helped co-create with aaron rosenberg and paul kupperberg called Redeus. basic premise there is that the 2012 olympics when they lit the olympic torch all the gods of all the pantheons of all the religions that ever were on the planet earth arrive in the heavens and zeus says we're back come worship us and we did an anthology of 11 short stories by different writers exploring what the world 20 years later would look like. That was well received enough that we're doing two more books uh, this year. So the very next thing I'll be doing is writing my short story for the Beyond Borders anthology, which is scheduled to come out in May. Beyond Borders would then be a look at these people and these gods beyond North America. And then in August would be a a second anthology this year uh, called Native Lands, which is all North America-based stories. Very busy times ahead, it sounds like. It's a good and creative times. It's very exciting. Bob, how would our listeners find you or follow you on social media? You get on a plane and you fly to the United States, you get off at LaGuardia <laughs> and you go to Bob's house. Uh, you would find me on Facebook as Bob Greenberger. You would find me at Bob Greenberger on Twitter or you would go to www.bobgreenberger.com because I'm a simple guy and easy to find. Thank you so much for coming on, Bob. We appreciate this. Um, we oh, we thank you for your time. Yes. You know, it's great trip and down memory lane it's great having you know knowledgeable people chat with you know it's good stuff so hopefully your listeners aren't too bored oh, i think they're gonna love this i think so too and we'll put up all the links in our show notes as to where they can contact you and about your projects and crazy eight press and all that kind of good stuff this has been a great opportunity to chat love to do it again down the road and you know thanks for inviting me on thanks for joining us at the captain's table and don't forget to turn the page for our next adventure
You've been listening to The Captain's Table at 10 Forward.